Welcome to the Broad Place podcast. The Broad Place is a global school for creativity, consciousness, and clarity, where you can discover your highest grade self through applied ancient knowledge and meditation for your modern life. In these podcasts, I aim to help inspire new ways of thinking, techniques, and philosophy around creativity, clarity, and consciousness. And in this particular podcast, I interview Joshua Yeldon, or Josh as we know him. He's a truly beautiful thinker, artist, and creative, and his career spans so many decades now. He weaves delicately his art, which he views as a profession, into his family life, integrating not only his wife, Joe into his creative sequence, but also his children. The rich experiences, sometimes tumultuous challenges that he's had in life, they all come alive in his art. I was really excited to interview Josh and extract what I could from him to share with you. Josh and Joe are both longtime meditators in our transcending meditation tradition, and his spiritual knowledge also runs deep. Now, generally, Josh and I have long, languid conversations that sprawl on his balcony or in nature, and in truth for this conversation, I was a little bit worried about how I would hold up as we were sitting in his sister's beautiful art gallery in Rushcutters Bay with an audience, and it was very different from how we would normally talk. Um, I've banged my mic a bit. <laughs> in the interview, I was touching my heart um, while talking, so I apologize for any tapping noises that are that are occurring, our sound technician couldn't get my attention to tell me to cut it out. Um, please note, our podcasts are not recorded in sound studios, but in live environments and people's studios. So I thank you for your patience with any feedback or diminishes um, in the quality in various parts. And we recorded this particular podcast with Josh straight after a group meditation sitting. We were surrounded by Josh's art for a show he had just opened, and he was very grateful and deservedly so, as it was a sold out show. So I really hope you enjoy this. I'm going to create some links in the show notes and also they'll be available on our podcast and at the end of the show enjoy my name's jack i co-founded the broad place with aaron my husband and it's what we call a school for creativity clarity and consciousness and one of the things we did last year was relaunch how we teach meditation and meditation is really at the core of what we of what we try to encourage people to do because for us it's the way that we can enhance our own clarity and understand ourselves and increase our ability to live more creatively and to expand our own consciousness and also those the consciousness of those that are around us. Um, when we launched last year integrated meditation at the very end of the year, it was a year's work in putting it together. And we really believe that meditation is for us, it's the most remarkable technique that you can employ uh, to be more grounded. But we also noticed in ourselves and in all of our, most of our students anyway, that if you couple that with inspiration and community, things start to really, really happen. And that was what we were doing um, with our integrated meditation program. And these events are a way to complement that um, because nothing beats in-person experience. And the idea around them initially was to just do something a little bit um, different to what we normally did. So uh, lots of you, particularly I know, I know a lot of you in the room um, really, really well. And a lot of the feedback was around how can we create something where you can also have a moment to socialize. Something that we hear all the time is, I'm on my own endeavor to be the best version of myself, but I don't have a lot of people in my life that are also trying to do that. And how do I connect with them? Um, the beauty of meditating in a group, obviously, you guys would have all felt it, uh, even if you were slightly uncomfortable. It's a, it's a really powerful experience. And then to be inspired 
And for Aaron and I, it's a huge part of the way in which we live is to make sure that we're inspired every day. And we really wanted these to be a platform that we could share the beautiful people in our lives and the people that we admire um, and their approach uh, and their unique ways in which they are in the world that seem completely natural to them. Um, but then when you get to know someone, you start to see all the beauty and the intricacies and um, the bits that they're like, but of course, and you're like, no, no, slow that down. That's fascinating. And so these conversations were a way in which we could do that. And Josh is a really dear friend of ours, and as is his whole family. And we've been bouncing around tonight how to address um, the, the conversation that we're going to have. But um, we're just going to keep it quite free-flowing because that's the way we normally converse anyway, and we don't want it to be too structured. <laughs> Something that um, I would like to kick off with, which is probably one of the most important uh, pieces of tonight, is mm. your definition of creativity. Ah. So uh, in our bouncing round together, uh, I said to you, I don't really know how to answer these things with words in particular uh, that, are, that are succinct because um, I come from a world where the, the tongue has no bone, which really I don't place a lot of value on most people's first dialogue. Um, so uh, what I'll do is uh, pause a second and then get something more juicy to share. <laughs> hmm. um, so I, I love Robin Hood, and, and I love Winnie the Pooh. And uh, I love Winnie because of that beautiful optimism of waking up in the morning and smelling somewhere out there in the forest is honey. And, uh, I track myself, I track my, sta my status uh, as, as against, against Winnie, often. And uh, when I wake up in the morning, um, I often uh, can get up very early because um, the night before in my studio, when the kids have gone to sleep, in my painting, I've seen the hive, but I didn't eat it. I've seen it and I stopped. And that's one of the great tricks that I, I utilized in my creativity was at nighttime to store an awareness for something to wake up to with great woohoo, you know, and excitement. And so therefore getting the kids ready and doing all the chores that aren't always that much fun. Uh, Vegemite toast and dad still can't do it right and got it, you know. But I know roughly down in the corner of one of my images is potential for me to discover something. And that was something that um, uh, really changed the game for me, was to leave something the night before. Uh, and regarding Robin Hood, the other part was uh, <laughs> I loved, uh, at a young, as a young boy, I was entranced by the Disney version of, of a little fox in green outfit with a little hat that somehow ended up in trees, keeping in mind I'm about six watching this on Walt Disney. This fox lived in a forest with some other fat foxes and had a girlfriend that had something over her nose, like a wedding, a wedding thing. And then they would raid people on carriages, steal their stuff and dance around a fire and then sneak into the village in in a disguise and go to an archery competition 
and win it and then get found out and have to escape. <coughs> so sometimes I see being an artist completely like being Robin Hood the fox in some ways where um, I wanted to live in a forest. I've always loved nature, but in some way um, I've had to trick the sequence to allow me to, to live uh, a primal life, but in a space that I grew up in, which is obviously, um, you know, uh, what are you doing? What do you do for a living? You know, the, the pressure to succeed, to be the best you can be, uh, being in schooling in this world. But in my travels, as I grew up from that little boy, I spent more and more time with nomadic people and people that lived in forests that I had to find a way uh, to exist in both spaces. And so Robin Hood um, and this concept of, of the power of archery has become really important with my son. This power of taking what's redundant, Robin Hood stole what was redundant and reactivated, and we can apply that in the Vedic path, is you take what's redundant, uh, and how do you know that? Your, your awareness of sequencing from a great height, Robin could look down and see the carriage coming way down the track, and he had time to create an ambush. And for me in life, the higher we go in our meditation or in our spiritual life, we get more and more view to make an ambush on something that we feel needs to change versus, you know, um, redundant behavior that finally nature slaps us all over the ground because we didn't let go of a behavior or, or a situation or a, a relationship or a, a practice that was no longer necessary. And I said to you in our bouncing around that the, one of the great characters for me in, in where I live in Karingai country is the snake that refuses to, sh to shed its skin. And we all know that shakes, uh, snakes shed their skin, and in that is the most amazing storyline, that by, by dropping the redundant skin comes the new version of their patterning. And, and uh, the snake that refuses uh, gets, their movement is restricted by a second dead skin dragging off their body. And they have to rub their, 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 their curling body over a rock to try and scrape it off, and therefore they cut themselves because they didn't release. And so for me, meditation, uh, diving in, is in the sequencing of diving in, I get flashes of awareness of skin that is coming off, which helps me when I come back out in daily life to then join that sequencing to, say, sitting in front of someone at lunch and realizing that this lunch is, is um, my uh, sitting in front of someone dumping their you know, rotten fish in front of me. And I'm realizing that in that rotten fish, one, I may not need to keep that ritual with this person for a while, create a space, allow them to regenerate, allow me to regenerate, and not just keep the practice where I'm seeing that person regularly. You know? And then regarding the rotten fish that they've dumped about their life, you know, obviously my practice is to go over that fish, up the rotten tail, back up to their eyes, and then to see life and love back in their eyes. So, you know, 
Something that I've always observed is this beautiful um, stitching together of your art with mm. your daily life. You know, like some people treat art like work, and you do that as in a prof you're professional about it, mm. but there's also this incredible uh, lapping over and synergy between being a creative person and then just your daily living. How would you describe how you harmonize the two? Do you see them the same? Do you see them differently? What Tell are me the more. So, for example, um, at home, like, you know, archery, you go, oh, well, you're an artist, what would archery have to do with art? Mm. And then, but your relationship mm. with Jude and then mm. and teaching him that, and then the studio is at home. Mm. Um, and I've frequently seen you come out of the studio and then, you know, play with the kids or teach them something or share something with them, an idea, and then, and then go back into the studio. There yeah. doesn't seem to be, it's definitely not a nine to five job. Yeah. But how do you, A, combine them and then how do you, A, also keep them sure. separate when you need? Well, the seed of what, you were describing of your observation of my life. The seed of it was, as a young father, I took the opportunity to redesign and relive my childhood in a way that was different to my upbringing, which my father worked so hard. I didn't have that intimacy where I got to fool around. So the first part of the seed was, I'm going to be a little boy again with the arrival of my son on this planet. I'm going to be a little boy again with, I'm going to be him. And I want to reenact that my father is me. That was the, the source. And then from that, I've slowly grown into the father that I am yeah. after 14 years. But the part of, for example, archery is that my father, traditionally from his father and the father that he had, he woke me up at five o'clock with a cup of tea and took me out in the garden and he bowled balls at me to practice at five in the morning cricket. And that was our intimate moment for about half an hour. Mm -hmm. And then because his honeypot was work, he dropped me at school really early, and I mean really early, where I would just sit and wait for a long time because he wanted to get to school. Mm -hmm. And we had this thing going on where our intimate space was the cup of tea, which was the Agni. He gave me his mm -hmm. beautiful cup of tea, which um, uh, strong, strong black tea, and then we would we would play cricket in archery, and and sorry, and in the cricket he had constant dialogue about improving my skill set, mm -hmm. about what I had done in the last shot, how to improve it. He told me about the grades, what Bradman would do, and my father was a very successful cricketer in his time mm -hmm. until he got hit in the eye and and he changed tact and went into fashion. So now I'm standing with my son. Archery, I can't explain anything to him. It's instinctual. Mm. All I can show is the first time we did it, oh, you pull the string back. But that's it. Mm. The rest is all his own endeavor. So the two of us are just together shooting 20 arrows at a target that is a big eye that I painted. We're kind of shooting this eyeball. And then he goes, oh, let's put some water balloons on it. So he put water balloons. But the beautiful part is we're just being. Mm. There's no yabba, 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 to the point where I quit cricket as a rebellion to my father. Mm. And I love him dearly. But at that age, it was just too much noise and not enough sensuality. Mm. I crave sensuality. So now my son and I, you know, we're about to shoot the water balloon and the bush turkey walks past and I'm watching him going like that and looking at the bush turkey and I'm going, 
what do you feel? And he's like, you know, he's like, does he want to take it out? You know, those kind of storylines. We all want to take out the bush turkeys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the last one was epic. We had a tornado come through our valley. Only in our valley, it smashed trees all the way down the water. A huge liquid amber fell on my house and smashed the roof. But there's one massive branch, really big, like would have weighed a ton, big trunk like this, hanging up high. And NRMA said, we won't pay for it to come down. We'll fix the one that fell on your house, but that's still in the land of... An act of God. Act of God. <laughs> and I said to my, my son was watching telly, and I said, hey, come out here. Do you think you can bring that down? And he looks at it. He's six, nine, sorry, he's nine. And he looks at it, and I give him the bow, and I give him an arrow, and I say, I reckon you can. And so over about an hour, he got the bow and the arrow. He got a little thread, tied it to the arrow, and kept trying to shoot it over the, the branch. It's about 10 metres up. Finally, it went around and dropped. Then he tied a bigger cord, pulled it, and then for about half an hour, he kept doing different angles of pulling. And, the, and he said, what about my deck? What about the deck? I said, don't worry about the deck. And he pulled, pulled, and this huge branch came down like a giant elephant. And he just went pale white and, and like... Mom's going to kill us. <laughs> and, like, he totally blew himself away that he could do something as epic as that. Mm. And to me, that's the father-son thing is pulling the elephant down, like the epics, you know, going for something that you had no idea you had the potential, and yet you, you work without a lot of, necessarily a lot of instruction. It's the knowledge is there. It just has to be applied. And that's the creative space is, um, you know, often my actions today are all the seeds I planted often years ago that are my actions today. And I might, be, I might be reaching, so correct me if I am, but mm. what you describe for me is the process of seeing you do your works as well because there's mm. layering and persistence and layering and trying and coming at it from this angle and coming mm. at it from that angle and this angle and then eventually it falls. Does mm. that... Because there's no... There's so much intricacy and beauty and, and emotion in them. It's not like there's a... Yeah. I mean, there's got to be an end, Thank obviously, you. but the way you just described Jude doing that process, like there's a, there's a ferocity there where yeah. you've got to be determined. Yeah, so I think a word that, that is underutilised that um, uh, is the word cunning. Mm. And I've been thinking about that. And uh, the fox, the Robin Hood fox is cunning. And I think we often think of cunning as, as that some detriment would happen to someone who's cunning, you mm. know. To me, the cunning aspect of creativity is, is, is the our knowledge, yeah. the ability to si uh, fly silently without anyone knowing and taking what is rightfully yours. Mm. And that comes with maturity, but it also comes with trial and error that sometimes you've flown into a couple of walls and you've uh, eaten the wrong thing, you've hunted the wrong thing, you've had your ass kicked. Um, in my meditation, uh, I was taken back very quickly to, uh, I was, for an instant, I was passing the parcel in a circle of children. And I was completely watching the sequencing of the mother on the stereo, watching the first time the parcel ran around. I knew she was aiming for her son. So I already worked that sequence out, and I'm in the group. And so I'm watching her go, oh! 
it's Tommy's. And everyone goes like this. And then it goes around. And I, I just had this awareness that it was going to happen with how close each kid knew the mother and their relationship. And I was the last to get the parcel. And then as it's happening, and I'm preempting that I'm getting the parcel, I knew that everything in those parcels was really shit. It was just silly plastic. And so I, I kind of watched the whole sequence. But, but the party game that blew me away was musical chairs. Because you had to dance your heart out. And then as soon as the music stopped, you had to be cunning to get to the chair. Yeah? yeah? So the first times I do musical chairs, I'm not really dancing. I'm just staring at the chair, you know? I'm like, you know, I'm that kid, you know, where some kids are like, don't care about the chair. You know, and the music goes off and they go, you know, and they're out, you know? But I wanted to be, I wanted to have a chair, you know? And so much of my childhood... I, I failed at so many things through learning difficulties and self-esteem. Uh, I had to grab some fucking chair, and I could fill a journal. I could fill a 100-page journal with drawings when no one else could. That was my chair. But getting back to the dancing, the first few times you're dancing and staring, but eventually it's that cutoff point of being the great success, which takes a long time, is the ability to completely dance but when the music stops, you're cunning. Versus I never really danced, I was always cunning. So our knowledge, full spiritual awareness, effortlessly, no need to hunt. Belly, fine, no need to hunt. Sit, absorb the vibration, absorb stillness and the ability to transcend and then a library of sequencing. You have a library of rustles in grass, rustles in leaves. You know that's goanna. You know that's small bush mouse. You know that's black snake. You've built up your language, your alphabet, my marks. I've built them up, and you're learning all the time and adding, but there's no point, no reason to act until in archery, we call it, Commit and fire, and you go beyond the target. So my son, commit and don't stay. You'll, you'll become redundant. You must commit and be, get beyond, go beyond the target. Commit. Because they don't get produced on their own. Now, there's something around art and creativity where it's, it can also become too, too whimsical. I, I caught up with... Um, Josh's wife, Joe, before this show, maybe two weeks before, and I've, we've got a lot of friends who are artists, and, you know, you can't... They're in a, an absolute blown... Uh, like a dark hole in the sort of the few weeks before the show because they're not ready. And I said to Joe, How's, how's Josh? Like, you know, nail-biting? Is he nervous? And she's like, No, he's ready to go. He's completely organised. He's committed. And committed was such a big word. Mm. It's like that he's, he knows what's ahead and you lock and load, and there's a discipline there that creates freedom yeah. as well, because I've never seen you strung there, out. There is, until like now this is post-show, the show's coming down, yeah. and now definitely for the next six months I am in um, a fragile seed planting stage. Mm -hmm. So, like farmers know, um, 
a, f a farmer has gone to harvest and worked out that the broccoli didn't do so well, but the tomatoes have done really well. You take that knowledge, you go back to your land with that knowledge, and then you look at your soil, and then you get that challenging moment where the soil even tells you you can't grow what just was successful. Mm. So what are you going to do? That's the space I'm in. So the ego wants to maintain, hoard success, but you go back to the farm and the land sometimes tells you something very different. So the land for me right now is saying, you're actually not painting for a while, you're actually writing. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because that's the space of sensuality that is slash vulnerable, slash uh, unknown to me, and I find charm in that. And so when I write a sentence, I get a little bit of nectar like Winnie, I get a little bit of nectar, but boy, do I get a big dark forest. Mm. You know, like right now I'm back in this space and that's my process is to dive in. So there is dark energy in these but my alliance is towards light, yeah. towards creativity. So I've got to go into darkness, such as going up river on my own for, long, for periods, face discomfort, and um, pull new life from that process. That's the sequence. Something I've been researching recently, discomfort is such an interesting word, mm. that we're also pleasure-driven and that we assume that pleasure is also happiness, but they're two separate things. And as a society, we usually are trying to seek pleasure and we're always running away from discomfort. Yeah. And the idea being that if we can calibrate ourselves for discomfort yeah. daily so that the body isn't so you know, geared up and yeah. the mind so you know, like a wild horse trying to run away from discomfort all the time, how do you deal with that, like the ego and discomfort, because they're yeah. one sort of fuels the other, really. Wow. Hmm. Um. Well, the the comfort the comfort issue is a real need of the time. I'm holding a blankie. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, again, you know, um, there's great joy to be had to rest and to eat well and to nourish. Uh, but for me, it's, those aspects really have great emphasis because you know coming up, is, a, is, is a, like a voyage out to sea, yeah? And everyone knows that you stock the boat up with all sorts of goodies and people bring you presents and you get really comfy in your boat. But the minute you head out to sea, everything is thrown everywhere. And before you know it, nature takes things, wets them, molds them, and you have to watch destruction occur to things that you cherished. In the... For me, in the Vedic tradition, um, uh, the more we embrace the marriage between like the double-headed snake, the snakes that are born with two heads, in indigenous cultures, they are the two brothers. One is the creation head, and one is the destroyer head, woven around. Mm -hmm. So the more I embrace my ownership of destruction, so I wake up in the morning, um, I'm not Winnie the Pooh, I'm Eeyore. I'm aware of that in me. And so instead of whacking Eeyore and putting him in a pen, I still kind of 
moan and go, go out into the, the forest and, and in his persona. But I keep kind of morphing back into Winnie. And so the question is, uh, we have that decision. How long do you wish to, to morph into, uh, how long do you wish to stay in one character and shift to another character? So I believe uh, uh, we are constantly spinning in a sequence of characters. And so in that, we have dominant character, we have the subservient. And I like that theatre. And I, I see life as a theatre. I see it as Broadway in New York. I see my life like I'm going down Broadway. Do I want melodrama today? Do I want to go inside and be the audience? Do I want to write the play? Do I want to produce it and be the actor of my melodrama? Or am I going into more an obscure, you know, you know ex obscure kind of ballet class? you know, where I'm going to try movements that I know my body doesn't want to do and I feel like a complete idiot, but I'm drawn to it for sensuality. And I, I see that Broadway is just running right down through me about what different theatre houses I choose to go into. And I have that power. And I can also take you and take you out of, like, say I take you out of um, one space and I can create sequences where we're both in a different space. That interests me. But that's um, cheeky. <laughs> Sometimes helpful. <laughs> um, have you, I know that now with the, the shows that you're doing, they're all selling out, but how do you deal with the heartbreak? I mean, for me, being an artist, is, yeah. I think personally it's not the most, like, he's my soul, would you like to buy it? Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of the most terrifying things yeah. that you can do in my mind. But um, how do you, do you ever get, like, attached to, like, oh, that's, like, my yes. favourite piece, and then that's the one piece that yes. then doesn't move, and you start to want. Do you then like mm. reconciling that? But I had an idea, and and then and then the heartbreak that goes with yeah. that. Because we all do this all the time. We've got projects or things that we're like, no, this mm. is the one, and then it's like no one else agreed. Yeah. And then it didn't, it didn't come into fruition. How do you cope with that? Um, uh, so. It, if you're abundant. You don't hoard. Mm. So uh, in times of struggling creatively, I was hoarding what I made because it wasn't coming just as water. Just as in South Africa, in Cape Town, we're hoarding water. So we're trying to work out how to score water. So you're not necessarily going to be that generous in this space. Yeah. The question is, the diplomacy that could have taken place months ago or years ago, could that have changed that today people in Cape Town are more uh, able to be generous? That has to be seen. Uh, but my feeling is generosity and giving helps when you're abundant. And in my case, I'm always giving, I'm always receiving magnificence in my creative practice. Um, and, and therefore, I'm able to release the work um, to put it, to make it vulnerable in the public, firstly, with no knowledge of what shall happen. So you work for two years, you have no full knowledge or security that you will actually be paid for that two years labor. Or, uh, mm. But over time, as the owl does, I learned sequencing that Joe and I kind of do a 30% hedge bet. And then we, at times, 
you know, we've gone low cards and not invested in other things just till we learn what happens at market. Mm -hmm. They're standard practices. Um, uh, there are some pictures that are high-grade knowledge paintings that I've not deciphered. The knowledge is knowledge comes in advance in my paintings, so I get premonitions mm -hmm. of what's coming in my life, and sometimes I haven't deciphered those, so they stay in the studio. Uh, sometimes I'll put a painting in the rack for three months because I'm too attached, and then I pull it out, and the boys come and take it straight away. Mm -hmm. So it's a forced kind of adoption process. Um, when I come into the, into the gallery, uh, I don't feel as much as that I made them. Mm. I'm completely loyal to what's in my studio at home. That is my Winnie the Pooh. These have come and gone, but they're still like beautiful ex-girlfriends. But, <laughs> but I've moved on, you know? Um, then I get the benefit of, of the financial reward. That's my time like a farmer to go back to the crop and say, wow, we could buy that harvester we've had our eye on forever. And we reinvest and reinvest in freedom to be create, creative, not in redundant behavior. Yeah. And that is so powerful because when you have a little windfall, you've got that moment to decide, ah, I know that brush has been talking to me for ages in the art shop and every time I go to look at it and I see the price, I haven't, but I know that's my brush. And so... That guy's back, he's fondling the brush. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you pay the $250, the $500 for the brush because it's got knowledge. So I justify the amount for money for the knowledge, just as we do in, the, in, in, in spirituality. We justify trading of monetary for knowledge. It's same with material. You buy the material that has the knowledge. But also you're describing like a delayed gratification as well. It's not like I can create and then should harvest come, then I can yeah, then. Yes. There's that beautiful But that's surface layer. Yeah. As I go up, mm. I always knew I was going to get the brush, but yeah. I tricked myself like a carrot to do the labor. Yeah. So to do the thousands of hours, mm -hmm. I've got to trick the, the, the animal in me to do it because it's long and incredibly Laborious. consuming. So I got to play games. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the games are I'll finish those three paintings um, and then uh, I, I, I will um, um, I, I, I will destroy something really big in the work. Yeah. I'll destroy something that I was attached to. That's a game. Yeah. Yeah, because it's impermanent. And then out of smashing, like every three pitches, I destroy the third, like with a belt sander, because I can turn it into something else. Mm. And then I run with it. Yeah. So it, it means that I'm still a young boy in my craft. Mm. I have no um, jurisdiction uh, of repetition that is redundant. And just before we wrap, yeah. if you, for everyone that's in, would like to enhance creativity in yeah. their life, not necessarily as you want to become a better artist, but just as a way in mm. which to be more in flow and expanded mm. and, mm. and understanding sequencing like you described it, yeah. what piece of advice would you give? Hmm. Well, 
where would, where would we be without the search for love? You know, we want to be loved. And for me, my greatest friend always through my whole life has been my creativity because uh, it's there for me at any moment when some friends come and go, some family members come and go. I even come and go uh, with my mind. But my ability to even just the in waking state of meditation, I was flying over um, central Australia over a dry lake and there's a dry creek in the cement and I was there. So my creative mind is so multidimensional that I'm, I'm, it, uh, I'm playing in planes of consciousness and loving it. Uh, at the same time, uh, I drag my legs and get in the mud when I'm told that I have to do, like today, I suddenly had to do lots of family chores that I wasn't up to speed with. And I had to learn how to get into my son's portal on the school I and all that stuff. <laughs> and so it was, it was struggle time because I had been permitted by Joe to be in my space and now she's doing her project. I'm suddenly have to catch up. Mm. And so it's all this process again yeah. of just centering, going, okay, time for upgrade. I am now the carer of my, my, my family. For a period of time, I have to own this. Yeah and not palm it off. I've got to own it, so let go of painting, let go of writing, own it, because it's abundant. You're gonna end up back in the sequence of creating, because yeah. I'm, I'm cunning. <laughs> <laughs> um, regarding art, um, uh, um, I, I really believe in copying. And a lot of kids at school are told not to copy. And everyone says, oh, you're copying me, and don't copy me. And I think this is a great tragedy. I believe in the schooling uh, of copying and celebrating someone in this room, let's say we're in a classroom, someone in this room becomes inspired and makes something amazing in the classroom. Instead of going pretty Aussie and we we don't say anything. We celebrate that person because they become an agent, an agent for something magnificent in that moment of time. And even that person doing an amazing drawing, they can't hoard that for too long because then another person in the room will become that agent. And I think our teachers have forgot, a lot of our teachers have forgotten that at different sequences, we all become an agent for something remarkable. And if we all support that person, then it, then it kind of becomes unified and we all start to feel the joy that that person's having. And then we start copying them, going, wow, I love how you did the petals of that flower. And as we copy, instead of having, uh, yours is like mine, it always becomes something else. It becomes yours in your sensuality, in your sensitive field. And so therefore, how, we all know it's impossible to be original anyway without taking what has already been magnificent. So I really celebrate that, to, to celebrate someone before you that truly is shining in that moment and ask if you can follow the way they're, they're performing or living their life. And this is the great way with spiritual people. You know, I, one of the greatest roles of my life is to find holy people and sit with them 
And not much needs to be said. It's just the absorbance, absorbingness of these people. I don't get involved <clears throat> in the daily uh, uh, rod and fish storyline with them. I'm just there to receive light. And this is the love. This is the love. And I think that kids all over Australia, if, they're, if they celebrate, come to school like Winnie the Pooh, oh, I wonder who's, who's going to be magnificent today. That's, that's my kind of school. You know, but not knowing who. It could be anyone. Because I can tell you, I was at a school where I wished I could have been magnificent. I really wished I could have done something magnificent. But you did now. <laughs> um, for those who, I know I've spoken to a lot of you already tonight and you've already read Josh's book. If you haven't and you want to know his beautiful story, uh, Surrender is the name of it, and it's at the front there. Um, just because we didn't touch on any of... Uh, we're really talking about the present more so than the past. And if you do want to dive into that, it's, it's really, really special and lovely. Um, I could listen all night. I know you guys could, but we do have to call it a day. Otherwise, Ali will never invite us back. Um, I just thank you so much for coming tonight, guys. Um, it was a pleasure to share. And thank you to Josh. Well, I just want to say that, that um, you, you are a bouncing ball of joy to, to live near. So thank you. <laughs> and obviously, the community you're building... Um, in a tradition that's coming all the way from the Himalaya. It's just very exciting and um, touches me. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Broad Place podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find out more about our interviewer at thebroadplace.com and in the show notes. And in addition, if this episode has inspired you to look more deeply into enhancing your creativity, your clarity, or your consciousness, visit us at www.thebroadplace.com. In there, you'll be able to find more information about our classes, our courses, our retreats, residential and non-residential, as well as our programs. Hope to connect to you soon.